Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Uh, this is Eric Mann, your host. I'm in studio, as always, with Channing Martinez, the producer of KPFK's Voices from the Front Lines, and also the co-host, when he chooses to be. <laughs> and sometimes he doesn't choose to be. But he's always here, and he's always the two of us you need to know. For every hour in front of the mic, there's at least eight or ten hours we spent together trying to figure the show out. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's why we're always together. So uh, very happy to have you on Voices today for a, a sad but important conversation about a fallen friend, Gary Stewart. A lot of you know him. Uh, I start out by saying today on Voices Radio, Arnie, the life of Gary Stewart, rhino and iTunes music magician, progressive activist, organizer, and philanthropist, funny, win witty, mensch, and dear friend. Uh, I wrote something as both the blurb for this show, and I'm going to be doing an article basically based on this blurb and then the transcripts of the shows you can about here today. One thing about today is we're very fortunate that in about 2013-14, which makes me think, where was he the last five years? Uh, Gary and I did two shows on film, uh, one in which he was in studio, one in which he called in. And Channing and I have just spent the last six hours going over it, taping, you know, editing it and finding the best cuts and actually cutting more of me out and bringing more of Gary in. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy to hear the vitality of his intellect and the, the sense of banter and humor between the two of us as two close friends. And he's a pretty brilliant film analyst and cultural critic as well. So I'm going to read you the uh, introduction, and then we're going to play part one of the interview, the conversation. Then I'll make some more comments, and then we're going to play part two. And uh, so let me start with who is Gary Stewart, for those of you who don't know. Uh, Gary Stewart, a good friend to so many, died last week at 62. With so much more important work he was needed to do, he left the love, admiration, and heartbreak of so many civil rights, environmental justice, black, Latina, women, and progressive organizers in Los Angeles. Gary is also a dear friend of ours at the Labor Community Strategy Center 
and obviously a dear friend of mine. He contributed funds generously, spent many but not enough lunches, dinners, and phone calls with me. I was never short of advice, some of which is actually pretty good, but always put forth with a rare combination of confidence and humility. We laughed a lot, loved to argue and debate, as my Uncle Charlie used to say, for argument's sake. And for many of us Jews, the form and content of argument is mentally challenging, intellectually and strategically essential, competitive, and fun. One of Gary's great gifts was giving gifts, not like Santa, who was a goy, not like Karl Marx, a better bearded choice, but like Gary Stewart, who was truly trunk-worthy, one of his many business ventures, whose mission he described as, quote, to turn you on to the best movies, music, TV shows, and videos you might have missed. But long before the formal start of Trunkworthy, we all knew Gary's trunk as a treasure trove of gifts. His selections were eclectic and off the chart. His gift to me of an amazing rhino box set, such as doctors, professors, kings and queens, the big old box of New Orleans, is one that I cherish to this day. This would be followed by two, three, and four season DVD collections of The Wire and Treme. Gary loved David Simon's work, as do I. Gorgeously packaged two and four CD sets of Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, and other soul-stirring stars and always some new film or TV series he wanted to turn us on to. One day, Gary came to the Strategy Center and met with 15 of our core staff and members. After an hour, clearly inspired, he said, I'll be right back. He must have driven his Prius up to the 12th floor of the Wiltern, opened his trunk, tipped the car upwards, and let every possible box set of music, films, and TV series fall into our laps. Everyone was allowed to choose one, and he gave us others to use as premiums to reward our closest members and supporters. He was so generous and so good-natured about it, just asking for the joy of others as the appreciation he sought. My greatest joy with Gary was debating and analyzing film. Film is such a powerful, often limited, sometimes flawed medium for great ideas and small, powerful insights. At its greatest, I always think of the Battle of Algiers, as you will pick your own, it is truly transformative. It's rare that people leave a theater without differing, conflicting, and sometimes carrying out angry debates demanding that others view cinematography, reality, the same way they did. Gary and I enjoyed the sparring, and on that, I learned so much from him. I wanted KPFT to consider a show with the both of us, maybe once a month, reviewing films, but neither of our lives could accommodate another new project. So here's my gift to you. This week's radio show, Gary Stewart and Eric Mann on Film, edited beautifully by Channing Martinez, producer of Voices from the Frontlines, KPFK Pacifica every Tuesday at 3 p.m. PSD, streaming live on Facebook, www.facebook.com, Eric Mann Speaks, and whatever this camera is doing, apparently I'm on it, uh, almost an hour of two KPF broadcasts from 2000 and 2014. We discussed the film Her, in which Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, falls in love with his operating system, played by Scarlett Johansson. We discussed The Wire and Treme by David Simon, which we both loved, but I argue Simon was negligent in not having a major character from a civil rights black community group in each series, and Gary disagreed. But he was wrong. 
Uh, Gary's tribute to John Sayles, comparing him to Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, is one I do hope John Sayles and Maggie Ramsey heard originally or get to hear soon, and go on our site at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. As you listen, do appreciate the brilliance of Gary's mind, his truly artful, witty, and trenchant, if very rapid, observations, the affection between us, and the great loss that we will not be able to hear his latest ideas, opinions on art, politics, and life. This is all the more reason to celebrate the wonderful work he has already achieved. And before we play the clip, which we're going to do right now, please go on our site, VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Channing and I put out every Monday and or Tuesday morning at the latest a beautiful coming attraction. We actually write text, you know, it takes work to let you know what's going to be on the show. Sometimes we also have another one that comes out that has a link as to the past show that you can download off the site. We're trying to build up a real set of listeners, friends who want to get this weekly email, and then we want to get a lot of people off it who don't want to get it. So if you could go on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, you'll see how to register. Just register, and then you'll be getting these weekly updates that we put out every week. And in that context, I want to introduce our dear friend, Gary Stewart. So, hey everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're listening to Voices from the Front Lines on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara and streaming all over the world on the World Wide Web, www.kpfk.org. We know that we have listeners all over the country, which is really terrific, and it means a whole lot that you're listening to us on the web. Today I'm going to have a friend of mine on. Uh, that's how I start thinking about Gary. His name is Gary Stewart, and he's sort of a radical man about town. He's worked for Rhino Records and helped to initiate Rhino in, in many, many ways. He worked for iTunes, and he has some ideas now about popularizing films. So he and I do a lot of talk about both music and film revolution and the intersection of that. And we're going to bring you in. But we're going to talk about some of our favorite films this year, why we think they're good. You should get ready. Uh, 818-985-5735. We'll go to the phones around 340. If Gary and I get boring, we'll go earlier. If we think we're so fascinating, we'll forget about you. But whatever happens, uh, I'm in studio with Gary Stewart. And... Gary is is a truly interesting guy because he is very close to social movements. He he is starting a a, a business called is it going to be called In My Trunk from My it's called Trunk? Trunkworthy. Trunkworthy. Besides the many things he does, he carries around DVDs and CDs in his trunk, lots of them. But I'm not going to give you the license number. And then when he goes to movement groups, he opens up the trunk and there are these like the first four se uh, seasons of The Wire, or a terrific box set on Louisiana music a la Treme. So he's sort of a friend to the movement, part of the movement. He, he serves on the Liberty Hill board. He worked for iTunes, I told you that. 
thank you for having me. Um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, somehow my opining uh, can be of some value. Sure, at least. But we'll see if it is. Well, <laughs> I, I think you'll irritate a lot of people That's and raise our ratings. It's always what I try to do. So let's start with your, your top three films of 2013. Top three films of 2013. Well, number one for me is a film called Stories We Tell by a Canadian actress named Sarah Pauly, who you've seen in a few films like The Sweet Hereafter and and some bigger budget films, some art films. She also directed Julie Christie uh, to an Oscar nomination in a film called Away, for her, Away From Her about a, uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, she's also an activist, by the way, so nice to work that in. She made a film about her family history and something she discovered in her family history that surprised her. It changed her own narrative, her own understanding, brought about a bit of a, of a, a early life crisis um, in her and her family. Uh, but the film goes in a different direction. It also becomes about storytelling and who gets to tell a story and who gets to own a narrative and and who needs that narrative. Um, so it's so much more than just a documentary. I, I'm very sad to see it passed up for, uh, well, I would have loved to see it get a Best Picture nomination, but at least a Best Documentary nomination. I think it was shortlisted or it was close to that. It got a lot of good reviews, attentions at film festivals. It's very watchable. It's not a spinach film. It's not good for you. It's a, it's a very personal story, and it's a, it's a documentary in the loosest sense of the word. Um, uh, it has a political context, I think, in every Everything that that you do, that you and I talk about, is really about telling our story, and it has a very uh, personal context as well. And by the way, it dotted a lot of top ten lists, dotted a lot of critics' lists. Go to your second film that you like a lot. Um, I really loved Inside Lewin Davis, um, the Coen Brothers movie uh, about the Greenwich Village folk scene, and I, I, I it it, uh, it didn't get an Oscar nomination. People were surprised. I think a lot of people I've talked to didn't like the film or felt it was too bleak or were kind of hoping for something else or were hoping for maybe more of what they perceive as the lunacy of the Coen brothers, which I think is a mixed perception. If you've been watching any recent films of theirs, like No Country for Old Men or A Serious Man, um, or they were looking for something exciting to kind of take you back to the glory days of folk music. And this just uses that world as a setting. I, I think the film's about two things. It's about the sort of marginal life that an artist has if they don't happen to be at the center of popularity or buzz, which uh, the the artist in Inside, which Lewin Davis is in that film, great performance uh, by Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Um, it could have been about the punk scene. It could have been about the beat poets. But it's also about somebody kind of bumping up against, you know, the maze of the universe and it not really working for him entirely. And, uh, and uh, without sounding too uh, pretentious, a bit of an existential journey movie like A Serious Man. And I think if you, if you see it through that prism, it's entertaining without being, you know, fun and exciting. I, I've seen it twice because there was so much to take in. And it's, you know... It's an entertaining, involving film that's, again, not like a serving of spinach. And I think a lot of people miss the boat on that one. particular film I liked was Her. I liked it a lot. I like Spike Jones. I like intentionality. So Joaquin Phoenix's character is a very lonely guy who gets hooked on an operating system. But what happens is that this is such an advanced form of technology that she is able to mimic emotion and react to emotion. Essentially, she does. She starts out with no emotional. She being Scarlett Johansson, who is, I think, does a terrific job as the voice of the operating system. And over time, they build a relationship, and they fall in love with each other. And I think Joaquin Phoenix is so vulnerable in the film. I mean, 
his hysteria at being so happy and not realizing that what he's happy about is pure unadulterated narcissism, that the operating system gives him everything he wants, tells him everything, it, it tells him he's funny, tells him he, you know, if he's sad, it's sort of like she could be the wife, if he's sexy, she could be the lover, if he's depressed, she could be the psychiatrist, all wrapped up in one, which is what every man dreams of, and then says, gee, my wife let me down, you know, I'm so disappointed she didn't achieve all those things. So, Again, without doing so-called spoiler alert, the crisis that he goes through from the original ecstasy is very fascinating and is a real rite of passage for him. And the idea that in the end, I will tell you this, he didn't shoot his mother. That was a different film. <laughs> in the end, he realizes that he has to have human relationships. That experience forced him back into understanding that if there was anything good in life, it's to be with a real human being. And then the last thing is, I'm very, very scared about the iPhone culture and the, you know, the whole electronic culture in the way that I'm very afraid that people are not turning out to be real people. That, again, the narcissism of texts and of emails and of always looking and always playing with it is almost like you have to interrupt their relationship with their phone to talk to you, which is actually one of the scenes in the film that's pretty funny. It's in there. I liked it a lot. It, it's one of my favorite films of the year, but I have a different interpretation than you. You're right in part. Um, I think uh, what I love about the film is it's not just a um, anti-technology screed. It, it explores that point uh, in that film, and this doesn't give away a lot. The operating system does take on a life of its own. Uh, um, uh, she does become a personality. It, it, it has some uh, exploration of artificial intelligence in it. Um, it you know talks about maybe in, in that way it talks about the mechanical and all of us needing to find the human as well on the side of her character. Um, I also like that that character is not just this person that could never connect with people. He'd come off a, a relationship that didn't work out the, that he was healing from. He had other people in his life. It wasn't as monocratic, and I think it was, uh, it was, it was smart. It was looking at many different nooks and crannies uh, of that situation and not saying, let's get rid of technology or it's hurting us. It's saying, here are some of the things we're going to have to take a look at. Here are some of the benefits. Well, I also think that the scene with Rudy Mara, who's his wife in the show where they are having a divorce and they're choosing to have the divorce at a table, is just another example of when a fine actress can come in and take the screen for three minutes and take it over. I forgot it was Rudy Mara for a minute. Like she did in The Social Network. Her, yes. Know, three minutes there. So, you know, the very best ones can theoretically steal the scene. So go see her. You, you read my review of Wolves of Wall Street. So there's nothing you could say better. But I'm trying to say, is there anything you would like to try to say that could live up to that? I can't top it. But um, uh, it's strange. I liked it better than you did. You know, while maybe having some problems with it. I... Um, uh, Scorsese is just such a great filmmaker in that uh, I, I noticed about an hour and 40 minutes into that film, I'm just noticing how quick it went and thinking I'm having a lot of fun. He's, you know, he really keeps things moving. Um, there's great performances and a great energy. 
uh, some of the moral problems people had with it and some of the sort of repetition of themes in the third hour did get to me. Um, I don't love the movie. I, I find it problematic. Um, uh, I, th I think people saying that it glorifies opulence and excess is a mistake. Uh, I think it's, it, it also perhaps falls short in not kind of taking a look at uh, the consequences of these characters. Hopefully this isn't a lazy critique, but it, it going on for um, three hours to me says maybe an hour and 40 minutes or two hours worth of showing this lifestyle and then letting you see how unsavory these characters are are fine. But if you're going to keep repeating the the you know the the hedonistic behavior, the sex, and the you know the unchecked power. I need something more. I need more context, and I need more consequence. That's my own prejudice as a film goer. I I, I, I wouldn't defend it. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be on my list. But uh, again, like her, there was a little more to it. And I think you know your critique was a was a really deep critique. But a lot of people have just said it glorifies things. I think that's too narrow a criticism. Uh, I don't think it's one of the best films of the year either. Wow. I mean, I, I'm more deeply upset, I think, and missing Gary Moore and listening to this. So this is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines. Uh, when Channing and I were editing, we edited as much of me out because it wasn't important what my review was as much as his thought on the review. And uh, just the sharpness of his mind, how rapidly, as you see, both his speech and his mind work. And... You know, the, the electricity, intellectual and affectionate electricity between the two of us. Uh, you know, just what a truly, truly brilliant guy. You're listening to Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines. I want to make sure you know who you're listening to. That's Gary Stewart, the late Gary Stewart, who just died recently at 62. And we're going to keep going, Ricky Herrera. I just want to let people know where we are in this conversation. And again, I want to thank Channing because what we did is we edited a lot of uh, noise so that can be a, a, a tighter back-to-back. -back. I finish a point and he just comes right in. So let's keep going. Yeah, I don't either, but I want to stay a little bit more with it because I do think it's a very important film, and I enjoyed it immensely. This is Eric Mann. I'm, I'm here with Gary Stewart. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. I saw Mean Street. We're talking about Martin Scorsese. I mean, I saw Mean Streets. Nothing but amazing, and the early Robert De Niro was just riveting I saw Goodfellas I saw Goodfellas and it follows a very similar line which is in Goodfellas the young guy gets involved he thinks it's great he thinks Big Paulie is just great everything is going to be wonderful it's sort of like a high school kid who sort of knows he's joined the mafia but thinks it's sort of like rough businessmen or something like that and then it shows addiction that you're in and you can't get out and then it shows your own deterioration. And then again, it shows the role of drugs. But here's the thing. In going back to the Wolf of Wall Street, who is the so-called hero? So it can't be the football coach on uh, Friday Night Kyle Life. Chandler, who's the FBI right. agent. So Kyle Chandler is given to me a lousy part. I mean, he's sort of treated like a tired bureaucrat who, you know, as he says, takes the subway home, he's made not to be sexy. He's made to be unattractive, and, and the FBI is very unattractive to me. So what I'm getting to is it's not so much that I thought the film glorified greed and glorified drugs, but 
if Denzel Washington busted into the room right then as the head of a community organization and said, we're demanding that you do one, two, and three for the community, of course, you can't make that film. That's the point, that once the external reality of the world comes in, not just around suffering, but if anybody came in with power, ideology, and action, Leonard DiCaprio, how would you write his part? Well, let me let me take a quick diversion there because you mentioned Goodfellas, and I forgot that that's what I was thinking of during the film is uh, Goodfellas for me was such a great, great film because it looked at this sort of mythology of violence and, and mafia culture and the glorification, and then it pulls the rug from, with, from, from under you and saying, oh, you're loving this, you're riding along with these people, and then some really horrible things happen. You went like, oh, yeah, I should be, uh, you know, there's some shame here, there's some embarrassment, and... I thought that was the last film he was going to make like that. I thought that, you know, this was his sort of commenting on mean streets and commenting on the male archetype and commenting on, you know, the popularization of crime. And, you know, I would like to see more growth. And I, I found Wolf of Wall Street in, in many ways repeated that note, but didn't even have the, you know, the ballast of the, of the, you know, the financial crimes. Back to your point. Community organizer busting in would be a different movie for me. I he, he made a choice to focus on on this one aspect, show it, hope that you would see something like a Rorschach ink block and get something out of it. Um, you know, to, let's bring in another uh, another medium here. Uh, if you remember uh, the end of the second season of Sopranos, it ends with a, a party Tony's having. Uh, you know, much like a celebration of the Godfather movies, and it's juxtaposed with. Um, uh, the senior center going out of business or, you know, these people, I think, losing their apartments, all the all the detritus of his crimes, which you really don't see in the early in The Sopranos. You know he's doing something criminal, but it seems all internal. And you see these, uh, you know, the sort of tumbleweeds of the lives that have been marginalized or destroyed. That's the, the kind of voice that I think might have been a little bit more appropriate uh, in Wolf of Wall Street. But then I didn't make that movie. You're listening to Gary Stewart and Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines. So let me try again about why... Come at instance, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like why David Simon cannot figure out a radical community organizer in either Treme or in uh, The Wired. So our little map is... You know, you work with Lane, I work with the Labor Community Strategy Center, there's scope, there's agenda, there's community coalition, there are the dreamers. All over the country, there's National Domestic Workers Alliance. In every city, there's now thousands, not millions, I wouldn't even say ten thousands, but thousands of people who are involved in social justice movement work and are damn attractive and damn able to walk into a scene and carry their lines. And I'm arguing that the reason why they keep us out is because, just like Rooney Mara, we're going to steal the show. Because, see, if Scorsese keeps you taking in and you're looking at Leonard DiCaprio, who is so beautiful. I mean, he can, if you're talking about manipulating the screen, I love watching. I could watch, you know, I could watch him brush his teeth for three hours. It's a seduction. It's a seduction. Yeah. And I know what he's doing. I know I'm being seduced. But then he cheats other people. And most people are thinking, I don't want to be that guy that got cheated. That's a loser. I want. I am Leonard DiCaprio. Then he tries to get away from the FBI. So I still like the criminals. But the film never has an attractive character who says, hey, Leonardo, 
you're not just wrong, you're a loser. We're having a demonstration today, you know, about rent strikes. We're having music. We're, you know, no, we're not having orgies. But we are a, a very exciting movement. We're trying to do something. A screenwriter could write a character like us into the script in a way that would burst the bubble. And I argue that that bubble can only exist because there's no alternative to it shown. I'd like to see more of that represented. But for me, that's a different film. Um, for me, um, the you know the film chooses, uh, or a show like The Wire or Treme, though those are um, displays or critiques of a problem. They're not examples of a solution. And, although I think Treme ultimately is about the solution. I think I think Treme uh, ultimately becomes about the solution to The Wire. The Wire is I always look at those two shows as The Wire is about a city that should work, has enough money, infrastructure, smart people, and doesn't because of institutional failure and 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 uh, political attitudes and marginalization. Treme is about a city that shouldn't work. It's underwater. It doesn't have a lot of money, um, and it often doesn't. But in the end, food, music, culture, and community kind of gets these people through. That the two don't in their equation include organizing or solutions is for me not a, a condemnation of them or even uh, for me a marginalization of those works, but maybe a reminder that you need to some, see some of those stories told in other films, that you know we get so few representations of this. It's not a problem of the individual film, but what's out there in the spectrum. Well, I'd still argue that it's part of the red-baiting culture, that the communist, the revolutionary, is not accepted in the story because in any story, I mean, let's look at Treme, a series that I love. So, you know, you have the white disc jockey and you have the white criminal lawyer who's, who's trying to track down a specific case. You have people from Ray Nagin's office. You have every, every musician under the sun is coming in there. What I'm arguing about is I've been in the black community for 50 years. I can't imagine a film about any black neighborhood that does not have the black militant in it. So it's not like it's a different film. It's a clear exclusion, in my opinion, because it's almost like David, uh, and I'm thinking this out loud, that David Simon is a great guy from everything I know. But what if he says, I am the furthest left that this show can go, and I don't want to cast any characters that will ruin the fact that I know where the show is supposed to go, and... I could have chosen to find some community organizer. I know that they exist, but in both shows he doesn't. And I think that's the cycle of the movement, which is we're not strong enough to just demand to be in these films. We could use a break. The break would be just casting somebody in a favorable light. We're not going to get that break, which hurts the movement. But at some point... I think we're going to have to have that struggle with politically creative people that think they're progressive, because as I'm listening to it, I think we're being written out of history, and I think it's pretty conscious. I think more of those films need to be made. I don't know if those things need to be worked into people that already have an existing point of view. Gary, you know, we're looking to you to find all those Hollywood revolutionaries. So we're talking about art, politics, and film and the role of politically conscious filmmakers. Let's go to John Sayles, because you had some very interesting analysis of his career, his phases. John Sayles, uh, for a, a lot of our listeners know and some don't, is th 
among the most politically conscious because every film he makes, he wants to tell a particular story to make a particular point. He works in the industry to get money as, as a film editor and other things, and he produces film. The last one was Go Four Sisters, which I happen to like a lot. But Gary, tell me how you understand John Sayles, some of the best films, and you are critical of his present period. Uh, let's not focus too much on the negative because I think his body of work, you think he's one of the great American filmmakers. And I know it, it's radical to say so, but I'd equate him with Coppola and Scorsese if you look at, uh, you know, that the first 20 years and, 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 and work hopefully to come. There's a certain kind of film he makes that I love. I mean, I really love a film like Brother from Another Planet or the film he made, Baby, It's You with Rosanna Arquette or The Secret of Rowan Inish, which is a very atypical film for him, a very kind of lyrical, poetic film. But the films I like are his films he makes about cities in transition. And I think he started it with City of Hope, which is sort of like a um, the wire before the wire. Um, most people, um, uh, the best example is most people know Lone Star um, from the late yeah, 90s yeah. about a Texas border town. Um, um, uh, lesser known is a film called Limbo about Alaska and Sunshine State about a, a small town in Florida. And they're all about, again, that struggle between the nostalgia of the past, um, the lessons of the past, uh, the different factions, race, class, immigration, but not in a didactic way. And, and, and even from John Sayles, who's a, you know, a very left-wing filmmaker, he's never trying to say everything that happens now um, is bad or negative. Even in a film like Sunshine State, he questions whether the role of history is excessive, whether the commemoration of something is even true, or whether it's false nostalgia. At the same time, uh, taking a look at the emptiness of not remembering the past and, and looking at sort of you know, the interlocking world of so many characters and so many communities. Wow, Gary Stewart, I wanted to make sure you got the last word uh, in that clip. Um, you know, you tend to miss people more. I mean, I, I don't fully compute. I'm not going to go see Gary again. And just a couple of thoughts on that before we go to part two. Uh, it's interesting because we're both uh, fundamentally optimistic and positive people. Uh, we both learned, or, or in my case, in my case, I never had very many sectarian tendencies, and neither did he. Um, you know, significantly, it's not better or worse. I mean, I come out of more of a black, anti-imperialist, pro-communist tradition. Uh, Gary comes out of a hard left liberal in the very best sense of the word, more like a George McGovern, who I think was the best left liberal that this country ever generated. He and I were very close friends. He understood the strategy center was different from him, but he enjoyed us, and I enjoyed him. Uh, what I was indicating in the cue to him, because he and I spoke before the show, is he started being a little critical of John Sayles' last period. And then when I threw him that, because I wanted him to say whatever he wanted to say, he said correctly, right on the spot, now I don't want to go into that, I want to focus more on how great John Sayles is. And that's absolutely right, that we have to be careful that we always have a point, whatever a point means, of what's wrong with somebody, what didn't work, or what you could improve, as if you could. I mean, could we do better than John Sayles? I mean, the man spent his whole life from Secaucus 7 on. He's been a movement person. To compare John Sayles, which I think is absolutely right, he says, 
may be heretical, but I don't think so, to compare them to Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese is on one level an enormous honor, or I would rather say the two of them should try to see if they could live up to John Sayles and other great filmmakers. So one of the things in listening to Gary, though, is um, he sort of does his ADD uh, in a very focused way. I mean, great minds have a lot going on, and I'm only being a little sarcastic. He's got so much in that head, but he's done a very good job, if you listen, of structuring it. He doesn't know where he's going to go. and It's like playing jazz. You don't know what you're going to say. He could, oh, that reminds me of a film. That reminds me of a book. That reminds me of, a, of a, a jazz sonnet. And that's how he and I would, I mean, we sounded like that off the air, and we sound like that on the air. We don't have enough people in the movement who have the kind of ease of mind to do some of the best creative work. Now, the first thing you need to know is the first thing isn't to be creative. The first thing is to learn the rules. Uh, we have too many people who are creative by just making up whatever's in their head, and they don't want to learn the structures that you need in which to be creative. So Nina Simone began by uh, classically trained, and uh, so did so many other people. And then from that, she developed from Bach to jazz and so forth. So my point is that Gary's mind, that's the main thing I was listening to, is his mind and his soul. His mind is terrific. He is encyclopedic. I mean, Gary, uh, for a living, made encyclopedias of music. In other words, that was his point. He would make collections, right? right. He would do, he, if he was going to do a big, big old box of soul, he would go and, and listen to every single song to figure out what was going to be the collection and what choices he made. Uh, so he's both encyclopedic and a good person, back to this mensch, good human being. When faced with a choice, he wanted to make sure that you could say his historical record was to say such great things about John Sayles, not to focus on any criticisms. So let's take a, is that your music? Then let's take it out for a few minutes and just take a break. This is Eric Mann and Channing Martinez. On Voices from the Front Lines. Voices from the Front Lines. The voice you've been hearing is our dear friend, Gary Stewart, who recently passed. And let's just take a break, and we'll be back with more Gary and more Eric. That was great. Thank you, Ricky Herrera. Uh, Eric Mann on Voices from the Front Lines in studio with Channing Martinez. Um, Channing, you were going to say something before we go to the next clip. Well, uh, just one thing that you were saying about people are too creative. I think one term that we keep using is they're also too postmodernists, right? 
and they keep putting every idea as important, but you know they reject the idea of actually having you know whole you know visions of the world. Even though postmodernism is a vision of the world, it's a destructive vision of the world, I think. Um, but that's one thing. And then I think the conversation you guys are having is really great. And I, I was listening to you, and I thought back to the play that you and Barbara keep telling telling me about that Shep and Barbara and others did on the buses where you worked with Cornerstone. And when you said that people can walk in and just steal the show... I think about how Barbara talks about how basically Shep walked on the bus and did this play and stole the show. He was late for his wedding. He was catching the bus. And everyone was saying, you fool, why are you catching the bus to a wedding? How are you going to be late? Why are you leaving just now? And he stole the show. And people, you know, people really identified with him. I don't want to be that guy catching the bus and look at this horrible bus service. And I think you're absolutely right. Working class people know exactly what to say, and they can walk in and steal a scene if they wanted to. Well, it's very cool, and just to say, Martina Hernandez would be very—that's uh, the person who did the part. Shep did another. So these are two oh, great oh, people. It's okay. all cool. It's all totally cool. I just want to say, for the record, so first of all, for the record, you know, Leanne Hurstman organized the program with Stephen Cutwig and other people at Cornerstone. Then, you're right, Barbara, Kirti Barnwall, Shepard Pettit, and Martina Hernandez, as four of the really good performers, uh, did a great job. And I think the question of art and culture and politics is, is a big part of what, this, what Voices from the Frontlines is trying to do. So with that, I just want to say again, you're listening to Voices from the Frontlines, this is a show honoring our dear friend Gary Stewart, who recently passed, and who, you know, tonight I'm going to go to the Liberty Hill dinner. It's, a, it's one of my favorite groups, and they have given money to the Strategy Center before it was even a Strategy Center. Paul Litt was the program officer in 1982, when, when I was at the General Motors plant, wow. uh, trying to get money for a film, I believe, called Tiger by the Tail, produced by Mikko Goldman, and trying to get money for just pulling this little thing called the Labor Community Coalition to keep GM Van Nuys open, which, by the way, kept GM Van Nuys open for 10 years. But Liberty Hill invested in us when we were just a concept. So that's the tradition which Gary comes out of. He was on the board. I know tonight so many of us are going to be saying just, I think Gary is going to be one of the most present conversations and just it's going to be good for me because it'll be an opportunity to mourn maybe more fully than I can even do on the show. So it's it's 3.43. We're not going to finish the next clip, but this is part two of Gary Stewart. And if there's a reference, which you'll, I don't know, I had made the critique about uh, Norman Lear and It's All in the Family and saying that I did not think it was a good show and that Archie Bunker was given the permission to say a lot of racist things. And if there's a reference to it with Gary, that's what he's referring to because I didn't want to have my whole thing take up his time. So with that, let's go back to the Eric Mann and, and Gary Stewart or Gary Stewart and Eric Mann on film. So this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. I'm completely right. And now we're going to listen to Gary, who's 
going to say a few things that are totally irrelevant or incorrect. Well, but, for, so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And, uh, and um, let me tell everybody who he is. Okay. Of course, he is a very dear friend of mine. He worked at Rhino Records, a senior VP in A&R for 25 years. and was iTunes for seven years. I'm going to get to that, dude. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Man, let me, I'm going to give you more time. He worked at iTunes for seven years. Gary's on the board of the Liberty Hill Foundation, advisory board of Los Angeles Alliance for New Economy, both of our friends. Quote, trying to balance the occasional pursuit of social justice with mind-numbingly opiating trips into pop culture indulgence. He's also a friend of the Strategy Center, and he's a friend of mine. Hey, Gary. Good intro. Good intro. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and uh, I'm going to say a lot of things that uh, Please. are wrong. Wait, they're <laughs> going to be completely right. Um, where to start? Um, first of all, I want to stand up for Norman Lear. I'm younger than you. I grew up watching All in the Family. I learned a lot about race and racism. Uh, the show was flawed. Looking through the prism of history, it maybe seems more condescending or erroneous in certain things. That's often the case when something takes on a subject first. Uh, uh, Norman Lear had a, a lot of power. He might not have been as informed as somebody would nowadays, but nobody else was doing it. Let's also not forget the episode where Archie Bunker shows the admiration for Sammy Davis Jr., and then, but won't doesn't want him to kiss him, and does it's the most uncomfortable moment, sort of exposing the you know the double standard of we love entertainers, we just don't love intimacy with the people. He all, that show also spawned spinoffs of uh, the Jeffersons, um, and Good Times, and Good Times was kind of a black honeymooners. It talked about people and projects dealing with a hard time. That wasn't something you saw on TV portrayed with any normalcy. Um, Good Times, uh, where did you see um, affluent upper class uh, ascending? Um, from lower class mobile blacks, upper, upward mobility um, blacks uh, as a center of a sitcom or any program, also first ever interracial relationship. Um, and I also, I get your critique of him, but I think it's the people who are opposing the things we're trying to move forward on rather than the people that maybe get it a little under-informed or even clueless are the ones that are more problematic. So we, we won't spend the whole time talking but about let, Norman Lear. Let me just respond to that. Okay. I was going to say, but here's the thing. I've worked, as you have, but I've been in auto factories with white workers, I mean, who are very in, intelligent, often do have a lot of racial problems. I don't think in a racist society that you can say pretty much unchecked racist things so consistently, you may read them through a better lens. Obviously, some people felt, oh, ho, ho, I get it. This is a pun on racism. I get what the intent was. The intent was to lampoon racism, take it out of the closet, give it a complexity. There were rebuttals, but here's what I think. If you did a focus group and you took a 1,000 white working people and said, what do you think of the show? I think too many would say, I love Archie Bunker. What a cool guy. And you say, well, what about the pun on racism? They say, what pun? You're right. A lot of people at the time, I remember people saying, are people laughing at him or laughing with him? And plenty of people were laughing with him. It's a fair critique, but I think that show moved the dialogue forward. It might have been better if something else that was, was differently oriented or better informed came out. It did afterwards, and also I, I think we need to give him credit for the legacy of things like Maud and the Jeffersons and Good Times, not to mention his work with people for the American way. Um, okay. You know. Next uh, film. Next film. Um, 
we'll talk about your four films or the two that I've seen. I, I want to sort of um, talk about a little bit about context because I tried to do a little research before coming here. I know you just uh, talked to me today. Um, and for me, I, by the way, great observation. We'll talk about that later, hopefully, about how those films are all about sort of individuals, a, a, a paucity uh, maybe not an absence, but a paucity of community, um, and I never thought about that, um, so I appreciate that. Um, you know, last year there was a lot of controversy over Selma being largely not recognized in the Oscar nominations and uh, the issues that brought, or brought about in terms of representing race and film and what was going on, and uh, they tried to compensate by having uh, more people of color as presenters or, you know, almost almost embarrassingly went out of their way. I don't know if you saw the Oscars to go right. like, look, we're not like this. This year they're like, okay, we're honoring Spike Lee, which he completely deserves it. And I think you're probably going to see uh, more variety. I think one of the two hosts uh, is going to be a person of color, if not both of them. I think that's very likely. That's fine. Um, but for me, uh, at the time, everybody was talking about, like, should Selma have gotten it? Did they get, did they get snubbed? It's like, well, I don't know if it got snubbed. I liked that film a lot. I thought it was very, very good, great in parts. I wouldn't say it was great. I think the problem wasn't that Selma didn't get recognized. The problem wasn't was look at the look at the larger context. Look at what you have to choose from. You know, you have like one or two films with people of color at their center, uh, and and for me that's the larger problem. So the next thing I started doing well today was looking at the pipeline, and you know I'm a film nerd, so I'm excited about what I'm reading about at the Toronto Film Festival or the Telluride, uh, um, uh, Venice, all these things that are going to be. You know, the Oscar films, the good films in the fall that are mind, you know, not mind-numbing films. I love mind-numbing films, by the way. Uh, nothing wrong with that. And thinking, well, what's going to be different this year? I mean, I'm all excited about everything I'm reading about, but I'm thinking, like, you know, you're right, a lot of white people. Uh, so I tried to do some research of what films have 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 non-white people in any key roles. I, I got a list. I don't recognize about half the titles and, uh, you know, and I'm a nerd, so I would. Here's what I see. Here's what you have. Maybe Straight Outta Compton has a shot at, at an Oscar or parts of it. Probably not likely for acting because no performance. You know, maybe the guy that played Easy E did. That might get it. Um, all I see, uh, the possibilities are Concussion. That's Will Smith's movie about um, football injuries. Uh, certainly they're trying for that. Sorry. And The Hateful Eight, the Tarantino film with Samuel Jackson. Beast of No Nation with Idris Elba. But not a lot. That's three uh, in, in a C. So um, we'll talk about other things. But for me, it's important to talk about that kind of context in terms of availability. Uh, there's the demand, but where's the supply? Well, one thing I want to say to our listeners and to my wife, Leanne, really, is one of the big true self-criticism I had is how hard I was on the film Selma. I... So you heard my self-criticism. That's as far as I need to go because I want to make sure I have time to talk about Gary a little bit. Uh, the self-criticism was I, was I felt I was too hard on the film Selma. I, it's now become one of my favorites. Uh, I still disagree with a lot of the portrayal of the more militant blacks. But I think Selma, since I was saying, why can't we have more political films, it has Ava DuVernay's politics, but there's a person who took her politics, and it's a very political uh, intervention, and created a brilliant narrative and created what I was saying in other things, which is 
who would you rather be, Leonard DiCaprio or Martin Luther King? Are you kidding? Or Coretta Scott King or Malcolm or uh, John Lewis or all the, you know, uh, Diane Nash. I mean, everybody in there was a hero and everybody in there was more attractive than the Wolf of Wall Street. But but here here I wanted to uh, make sure I got an important story because this is, to me, a show of record about my dear friend Gary. Um, Gary, among other things, at Rhino Records developed a fund that he worked in some conjunction with Liberty Hill to give money from Rhino Records profits to grassroots groups. And through a very nice thing, uh, we were one of the groups that got the money. And then one year, uh, there was a public event, and uh, Antonio Villagosa was there. He was, of course, the mayor, and we were the Bus Riders Union, and we felt that the Bus Riders Union was being absolutely taken advantage of by Antonio, who had been at one point our friend, our very close friend. But when he became mayor, he, instead of helping the Bus Riders Union, he started to violate our civil rights, in our opinion, cutting bus service after he had 10 years before testified in our legal case on our behalf. So we were placed in a very difficult dilemma. A lot of our friends were having this event, uh, but we can't let Antonio Vitagosa dominate the progressive stage. So we negotiated with the people who were having the event, and they were very generous, and we said, look, we're not trying to mess your event up, but we have to have our voice at the event. And Kikanza Ramsey got up and was on the program, and I think in a very constructive manner, challenged Villaraigosa. And that was that. And then the next year, I don't know what happened, but I didn't get the grant from Rhino Records. And I don't think when we don't get a grant, I don't think we're entitled to it. It's not We have no right to it. You get one year, you don't get another year. We're happy the year you got it. So I didn't think too much about it. I was a little confused, but I didn't know Gary Stewart that well yet. So about a year later, I get a call from Gary, and he says, Eric, listen, I feel very bad. Um, last year, I didn't give you the grant because I don't didn't I liked Vietagosa a lot, and I felt that you you were wrong to challenge him, and I didn't like what you did. And he says, but then I thought about it. He says, who am I to tell a grassroots group how? to struggle with an elected official. And who am I to take Rhino's money and withhold it from the bus riders union? So I've been thinking about it a long time, and this year I want to double your grant to give you this year's grant and the last year's grant that you deserved. I was shocked because I've always tried to raise money based on us being who we are. And believing that many people who have money are not as militant or as left or whatever, but would see the decency in what we do. For a person to go, like Gary did, to go through such an internal struggle with himself and then to double the grant the next year and say he owed us something, which he didn't. But it is the kind of, and I will say again, the Jewish partly, introspective, not just you know caricature of guilty, but the whole question of, are you an ethical person? And we know that in every culture, that's the question. You know, did you behave in an ethical manner? Did you in some way punish someone 
because of your predispositions or your feelings were hurt or something. And out of that came the friendship because I didn't know him that well. And I thought that was so profoundly vulnerable on his part. So thank you, Gary, for that. Um, and uh, Ricky, how many minutes you got left? Two. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say, I don't. there is no punchline to a person's life. There is no end mm-hmm. to a person's life. But I do think that I always go back to the, I believe it's a Buddha quote that says, you die twice, once when your body leaves the earth and once when all the people who know you have left the earth. That's why we do Voices from the Frontlines. That's why I work so hard on the Pacifica archives because Fannie Lou Hamer will never leave the earth and Malcolm will never leave the earth and Martin Luther King will never leave the earth. And in our small way, neither will our dear friend Gary Stewart. And I think I want to end there and have Nina Simone have more time to say I did it my way. And Gary, you really did it your way. And I'm sorry. I was just starting to realize how much I'm going to miss you. You take care of yourself, Gary Stewart. We are still with you. Thanks, everybody. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, KPFK. We'll see you next Tuesday. Janny, you get the last words. No, that was it. See you next Tuesday. Tune into the actual recording on Facebook Live. We are wanting to build that audience. And next Tuesday, I think we'll be doing a little bit more of Gary Stewart. Thanks, everybody. You take care of yourself. Much more than this.